Good morning. How many of y'all know who this guy is? <laughs> Old school toy, right? We got a box full of them at home. Mr. Potato Head. If I could sum up my message this morning in one line, here it is. God is not Mr. Potato Head. That, that's it in a nutshell. God is not Mr. Potato Head. But the way we humans act sometimes, it seems like we sure think he is. What, what do we do sometimes? We, we, we say things like, uh, or think things like, I, I don't want a God who sees and, and hears my sin. I certainly don't want a God who calls my sin out for what it is. He calls it sin and then says he's the only way to salvation and tells me to repent. So let's lose that mouth there. <laughs> I don't want a God that points to my enemies in my life and tells me that, that I should love them and, and pray for them. So let's take that out. And certainly, I, I don't want a God that sometimes walks me down paths of suffering. Let's take those feet off. Someone once said, God created man in his own image, and we return the favor. We went on and created him in our own image. The trouble when we do that is that we end up with a God who's just like the idols, in the Old Testament, a God who cannot hear, a God who cannot see, a God who cannot speak, and a God who cannot save, because that God is no God at all. As we go through this morning, I want us to have a question in mind. Is, is there any way I have been trying to make God into my own image, to shape him according to my wishes, my preferences, my understanding. As we walk through, we're going to start with instructions for delayed publication. You remember last week there was a major turning point in the gospel Jesus asked his guys, who do you say that I am? And Matthew 16, 15, going on to 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Major turning point. And you might think, hey, this is the time, right? Like, Jesus, you should look at your guys and call up the sign company. Tell them to have 12 billboards printed with, with that on it. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And each of you, go stand at a corner in Jerusalem and just shout it out. Is that what happened? No, verse 20 might seem strange. It says he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one. He was the Christ. Say, why? Why? They, they get it. Why not go tell them? Well, there's several answers to that. I'm going to focus on one. We're, we're, we're going to see that while Peter said the right words about who Christ was, 
and even believed them, he had a very limited and warped understanding of what that meant. If they had gone out then and started telling people that Jesus is the Messiah, I believe they, they, they would have also said, maybe quietly, get ready. Grab your swords. Jesus is about to lead a revolution against the Romans and set up his earthly kingdom now. Get ready. Because that was the, the common understanding of Messiah at the time. Not untrue, but the timing was off. They didn't know that yet. They were in for a shock. Peter and the other disciples. I want to talk to you about needed preparation that Jesus was doing with them. And I'm thankful that he prepares us to. He wisely taught them one lesson at a time. He knew before you're going to get the next one, you need to get this one. Have you found that in your life? Before you grow, sometimes you get stuck for a while at one, and he keeps working till, till we get it. They had to know Christology 101, who Christ is, before they were ready for Christology 201. What that meant and, and what he came to do. He's about to enter into Christology 201 with these guys. Verse 21 says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. It's not just once. We see at least three times after this where it happens. It's over and over again. He began to show his disciples. That means plainly and clearly. He'd made veiled allusions to his death before. We've seen them in the gospel. But he's about to get very plain, very clear. You know the difference if you have kids that do chores and you remember when they're very young and you start them on chores and, and you start out by just telling them, hey, one of you, your job is the kitchen trash. Right? But as you go along, you, you notice there's the need to be more plain, right? Like before it's overflowing on the ground. And please make sure you put a new bag in when you're done so we don't throw that nasty stuff right in the can. You get more plain in telling them what you need to get across. He's about to get remarkably clear with this guys about what's coming. If you have your Bibles, I want you to look with me in Matthew 16. He, he tells them four things that he must go to Jerusalem Two, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Three, be killed. Four, on the third day, be raised. Many speculate, and I agree with them, that they probably barely heard that last part about being raised. They likely got stuck on that word killed. But he said, the Messiah must do these things. What's that must all about? Well, I like what G. Campbell Morgan said. He said, this must was older than circumstances. This must came thundering in out of eternity. The divine eternal counsels of God were operating in Christ and driving him along that pathway. In other words, Jesus was no helpless victim. He was in complete control even as these things unfolded. And he was also right in the center of his Father's will. And he's going to prepare his guys for this because this would be shocking, 
right? I think of this must and God's control in difficult moments. I think of what, what they likely had read even as children growing up. Isaiah 46, 9. God says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Do you have that understanding of God this morning? I want to ask you this morning, where are you at in your walk with God this morning? Because maybe some of you are at a crossroads where you have your own questions about who he is or, or what he's allowed or orchestrated in your life right now. The same kind of questions these guys were dealing with. I want to ask you, do you trust the must? Do you trust the must? In other words, that God is in complete control, even in the middle of this confusion and trial. Next, we move on to a well-meaning confrontation. Last week, Peter was commended for his confession of who Christ was. Now we're about to see Peter's confusion. This is part of why I like Peter. Sometimes I'm confused. Verse 22, it says, Peter took him aside. You can imagine the guy's walking here, there, anywhere maybe, and Peter says, hey, Jesus, come here. Come here, I got I to tell you something. It says, began to rebuke Jesus. The word began there tells us that Peter likely would have gone on and on. He was just getting warmed up. Began to rebuke Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. <coughs> rebuke Christ. And be, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You say, why? Well, for Peter, you know, a father's job, his jo dad Jonah, it would have been his job in his home to teach their kids. If growing up, let's just imagine that Jonah had created a multiple choice test to help teach his kids growing up. And Peter's there with Andrew and maybe some other siblings. And dad's test says, circle the group of words that go with the Messiah we're waiting for. A, rejection, suffering, and death. B, mighty victory, enthronement, and glory. And if you get it right, I'll give you a special dessert. Peter and his siblings would have said, boy, <laughs> Dad got an easy one tonight. It's B, of course, mighty victory. Enthronement? Glory? Besides that, he loved Jesus very much. Alexander White did some great studies of the different disciples, and one thing he said is the worst disease of the human heart is cold. Indifference. With all his faults, and Peter was full of them, a cold heart was not one of them. He loved Jesus. You remember as he was being restored after the resurrection, Jesus kept asking him, do you love me? In John 21, 17, Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Could you say that? 
love Jesus. Could I say that this morning with integrity? I believe everything Peter said here had love and, and good intent behind it. And maybe he was expecting to be appreciated for that. I don't know. Hey, Peter, thank you. I, I really appreciate you looking out for me. Maybe we should change course. Thanks for the advice. Maybe he's hoping for that. If so, he would have been surprised because we're going to go into a much needed refutation from Jesus. Verse 23 says, Jesus turned, perhaps looked right at Peter in the face. Get behind me, Satan. Satan, when translated, means adversary, enemy. You say, why so strong, Jesus? Peter just cares about you. Because this was a temptation away from the cross, from his Father's will, which was everything to him. He had heard it before from Satan's own lips. Matthew 4, you remember 8? Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. I'll give you the glory, just worship me. Skip that cross. Jesus said to him, be gone. That's Matthew 4. Here in 16, he sees the enemy using a friend. Using a friend to bring about the same temptation. Matthew Henry, way back in the 1600s, I believe, wrote this. He said, we should learn to know the devil's voice when he speaks in a saint, as well as when he speaks in a serpent. Much as Peter loved Jesus, he detected that the devil was seeking to use him at that moment. And he said, you are a hindrance to me. A hindrance to me. The, the Greek word for hindrance there literally means a stumbling stone. The stone had become now a stumbling stone on Jesus' path to the cross. Why? For, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. The things of God were, hey, the cross is on the road to glory. It's a necessary stop. What do the things of, of man say? What does common sense say? Avoid suffering at all costs. Right? But this must that we talked about earlier, it was communicated in their scriptures. Isaiah 53, I can only hit a couple verses, but predicting not only the crucifixion, but the resurrection of the Messiah. Listen to verse 10 and 11. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Now you're starting to get to the resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. But this idea of a Messiah dying 
at the hands of the Romans especially. It was so opposed to man's idea of what Messiah should be that that passage in Isaiah 53 came to be explained in many other ways. One being surely the, the mighty Messiah in the other passages who conquers and overcomes has to be separate from this suffering servant. They, they can't be one and the same. That just doesn't make human sense. Many believe that. Jesus would teach his guys and you and I that they are one and the same. Now his response here to Peter is a little different than in Matthew 4 to Satan. Matthew 4, he said, be gone. What does he say here? Get behind me, Satan. Now let me ask you a question. Would Satan ever willingly fall in line behind Jesus and, and follow him? No, Satan lives to oppose everything that Christ is and is about. So I believe, along with many, that even as Jesus acknowledges the reality that Satan's at work here, he's speaking to Peter as well about his proper place as a disciple. Peter, get behind me. Right now, you're trying to be in front of me, giving me advice. I like what D.A. Carson said here. Peter's strong will and warm heart linked to his ignorance produce a shocking bit of arrogance. He confesses that Jesus is the Messiah and then speaks in a way implying that he knows more of God's will than the Messiah himself. You ever been there? I believe he's God, but I'm going to give him some advice this morning about how I think this little situation should go. But part of what he's saying to Peter is that you, you're out of line here. You're in the wrong place. And it's not just that you're not in front of me. We're, we're not even equals, Peter. It's not walking side by side with me in that sense. You, you fall in line with the rest of my followers behind me. Now, I think about this, this sin. And you can't get around it. It is a sin to rebuke God. And, and speak against something he has just told you is his will, okay? We can't sugarcoat that. But I think about that, and I think that's one of the reasons we love Peter as well. We look at our own lives, and we see those moments where our confusion, our flesh, our thoughts on the things of men get, get in the way. And I like what a preacher from the 1800s, John Daniel Jones, said about Peter and for us. He said, it's a good thing for, for Peter that Jesus didn't follow Peter's suggestion for how many times we should forgive people. You remember Peter came to Jesus and said, hey, how's about seven times we forgive people? And he probably thought he was being very spiritual. Let's take the three times the religious leaders talk about, double it and add one. And Jesus said, no, Peter, it's 70 times 7. And it's a good thing for Peter. I, I read that, and I started looking through the, the scriptures, and I counted at least eight of Peter's sins. Forgive me, Peter. I've got them, too. The, the lie about the loyalty in the upper room, even if all fall away, I never will. That turned out to be a lie. 
the sleeping in the garden when Jesus said you should have been praying. The, the sword in the garden, which was obviously not the Messiah's will, even if well intended. Let's add three for the three denials. Even after Pentecost, you get to Galatia and he's siding with the legalizers and Paul has to rebuke him for his cowardice. And right here, we had this rebuke of the Messiah and his will. We're up to number eight. Thank God he didn't take Peter's suggestion. Thank God for Jesus' forgiveness and restoration in his life. That gives us hope. Because you see, you look the other side of Pentecost, Peter eventually understood the must that Jesus was talking about here. You see it in Acts chapter 2. As he preached right in the heart of Jerusalem, where it had all gone down, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, you see, he's got the must now. It was God's plan all along. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You jump down to verse 37. You watch God work. says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Maybe some of you are aware of your own sinners saying that today. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter eventually understood the must, but to get there, he had to smash his idolatrous view of Messiah and line it up with what God had revealed. And this morning, I want to close in a very different place than I planned to a week ago. I plan to go on to the next section. We're, we're going to save that for next week. As we think about smashing idolatrous views of God, I want to close where we began by, by looking at one of Jesus' ancestors, Josiah. Matthew 1.11, one of Judah's kings. 2 Chronicles 34 says Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Do we have anybody close to eight in here? I just love a visual here. If we got an eight-year-old willing to stand up. Anybody? They're all. Are you eight? Can you come up here for a second? Just, just to wrap our minds around this. <laughs> how, how would you like to be king of a country? You would not. <laughs> Smart kid. <laughs> Smart kid. What's your name? Ryland, thank you for coming up here, buddy. Eight years old. You can go have a seat. 
Eight years old, Josiah began to reign. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. So now 16 years old, he's, he's seeking the Lord for direction. And in the 12th year, at the age of 20, he began to purge Judah in Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of Baal in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. And he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He went throughout Israel ridding the land of idols. I look at Jesus in the passage we talked about today. It's what I see him doing with Peter, well-meaning though Peter was. He is smashing an idol, a, a version of God that was created in our image. And I, I would like to say that, that uh, Jesus was reflecting his ancestor, Josiah, but I think in a deeper sense, Josiah had been reflecting his descendant, the Son of God, who was also his creator, and smashing those idols. You think about the idol that Peter brought that day. What if Jesus had followed Peter's advice somehow? He would have stepped outside his father's will. Would have removed all possibility of salvation for Peter, for you, and for me. Peter eventually smashed that idol and fell back in line. As we close, I want to invite Aaron and the worship team up. We're going to have a few quiet moments with God. Because I believe the Holy Spirit is the best teacher. I want us to process through this, just one-on-one, -on -one, you and God. Ask the question, do I have any idolatrous views of God to smash this morning? Is there any place in my life where I've edited God according to my liking? Maybe I'm uncomfortable with an aspect of who he is or don't understand what he's doing, and I've rather than embrace it and trust him, sought to redefine him. I believe we all come to moments like that where that's a temptation. And we have to ask the question, will I listen to the word of God? We have his scriptures and fall in line. Or will I hold on to my version and become a stumbling block in the kingdom? Will I cling to who he reveals himself to be or, or try to recreate him? Am I attempting to advise God about any situation in my life rather than embracing his wisdom, his ways, his will? And if God points his finger at something, I'd encourage you to ask him. Confess it. 
Thank him, rather, for the blood of Jesus Christ, which washed Peter and restored him. Receive that and ask him in his strength to follow the Messiah as revealed by God himself. This time's for you. 